From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week, we're talking about how tax incentives are used to guide investor decisions. If we have a country in which the, the lottery of birth, where which zip code you're born in, ha- has uh, too much to say about what your life outcomes are going to look like, uh, I think that is a dangerous thing for people's belief in the fundamental fairness of our economic system. The Opportunity Zone's tax break isn't the first attempt by lawmakers to drive investment into economically distressed communities. What makes this idea better than previous attempts at place-based tax incentives? It shifts the status quo. Investors typically leave their capital gains idle so as not to trigger a capital gains tax. What this incentive does is give investors a two-part tax break on those same gains. The policy's gotten a lot of attention from investors, and there are now over 8,700 census tracts that are designated opportunity zones. But critics are worried that rapid investment could displace residents and drive up the cost of living in areas that have been slow to recover from the 2008 financial crisis. A Washington-based economic think tank, the Economic Innovation Group, was created nearly eight years following the crisis to address some of its lingering problems. John Latiri, the president and CEO of the Economic Innovation Group, talked to me about why a tax incentive is the best tool to turn the heads of investors to historically overlooked communities. We, we came up with this as a result of looking at trends in the economic recovery following the Great Recession that suggested a, uh, a widening of geographic inequality. And so the recovery was much more concentrated than what we've seen in previous recoveries, uh, concentrated geographically in places that um, tended to be large superstar metro areas that were accruing most of the job gains, most of the business uh, net business formation that we saw in the years post-recession. And in the meantime, you had places that had otherwise been doing okay prior to the recession, really failing to catch any traction in the recovery, and places that had been doing poorly going into the recession really cratering out uh, in the years afterwards. So that suggested a new type of policy challenge because uh, typically when you see the national economy growing, particularly at a strong rate, most places uh, are reflecting that national growth. This is really the first recovery where that's not true. Uh, and, and certainly in the degree that we're seeing it, uh, it's the most stark regional divide in terms of economic growth. So it seemed like a good time to be revisiting the idea of place-based incentives and place-based policy which have had several iterations over the years, uh, many of them with the term zones in the uh, in the title, uh, enterprise zones. You also have things like new markets tax credit, LIHTC, other things that are intended to get private capital moving into certain types of communities with certain types of purpose. And so the first thing we did when we launched the organization in 2015 was really evaluate the history and the legacy of place-based policymaking and try to understand wh- what have been the dimensions of these programs, where have they fallen short of their aspirations, and most importantly, why? What are the design features that have uh, gotten in the way of the kind of outcomes that everybody uh, intended with those po- programs? And I have to say, some of them have been successful on certain measures. It's not, uh, I think, people too often dismiss place-based policy of the past as a uniform failure. Uh, I don't think that's the case. But I certainly think we have not built in to these types of policies the kinds of attributes that set the communities up for maximum success and that provide the easiest on-ramp for the very actors we're trying to recruit, which are private investors and entrepreneurs and people with, uh, with the resources to actually engage with the communities that are, that are being targeted. So a lot of those lessons learned made their way into the Opportunity Zones concept, uh, which we started working on with House and Senate Republicans and Democrats as early as 2015, so shortly after our, 
our rollout as an organization, and then that became a standalone piece of legislation in 2016, uh, and uh, quickly built a pretty broad bipartisan following, uh, so much so that by 2017, when tax reform really started to heat up, you had almost 100 co-sponsors in the House and Senate, really the, the widest possible uh, collection of Republicans and Democrats, rural and inner city, uh, every type of uh, member represented, every type of region represented. So it was in a very good position by the time tax reform became a real concern uh, to, to be folded in, uh, which really uh, was a result of, um, mo- most importantly, uh, heavy engagement from Senator Tim Scott, who was the lead Senate sponsor. So when we talk about place-based economic policy, uh, are most of those efforts uh, tax incentives or, or tax breaks, tax credits, or are there other measures that the government's try to implement in order to shift money into distressed areas? Usually tax is at the center, even if it's not the entire exercise. It's, it's uh, because capital is such a critical ingredient in the success of a local community and being able to fund local businesses and the redevelopment of the built environment is such an essential piece of longer-term prosperity uh, that you've typically seen these types of programs either in part or in whole uh, center on tax policy. Uh, and Opportunity Zones is no different in that regard. It, it is uh, a way of getting capital off the sidelines using the tax code. Uh, but that's really where the similarities, I think, end between Opportunity Zones and most of the other place-based programs that have preceded it. Uh, and I, again, looking at the design features of previous programs and understanding where those limitations are uh, was a, a, a really key part of informing what should a, a modern type of place-based policy look like, especially in light of the kind of widening geographic trends that we're talking about. So, for example, in the, in the 1990s, when Enterprise Zones was conceived and, and passed, you didn't have the kind of disparity that you see today. I mean, most places you close your eyes and put your finger on the map, most places matched or exceeded the national rate of jobs and business growth. And that's no longer true. It's less than a quarter today. And and so the gap between top performing places and distressed places is much wider than it once was. So if anything, you need even more careful focus on what are the type of features that really do allow for market participation and engagement in these types of communities. So yeah, I mean that's that the, the short answer is tax almost, almost always seems to be a centerpiece uh, of these types of policies, and for good reason because um, so much of it starts with being able to get capital off the sidelines. As this disparity between successful uh, cities and less successful cities, as that was growing, were people paying attention to tax policy in real time, or was it more taking a look back and saying, "Oh, ten years out, it turns out that actually didn't quite work." Well, New Market Tax Credit has been. A, it, certainly, in terms of longevity, it's been a successful program. It, it's uh, it's still around and uh, and has enjoyed pretty strong bipartisan support. Uh, it was really the last major effort like this uh, in this category, uh, and came at the very end of the Clinton administration. So, so Bill Clinton was president the last time we had a major place-based initiative uh, prior to Opportunity Zones. But for example, when you have a tax credit, when that's the the framework uh, for the incentive. You have an inherent challenge of scale. Scalability becomes a problem because there are very few unlimited tax credits, uh, obviously for cost reasons, right? So if if you have uh, if you have a scale challenge, you also have a distribution challenge of when it comes to communities. Only a certain number of communities in any given year are going to see any benefit. So that's one challenge. And second, you have an intermediation challenge, meaning somebody has to hand out the credit on a case by case basis, which um, provides a certain type of gatekeeping, but it also slows down the process and makes it 
much more complicated to get from point A to point B. So if I'm an investor and you're an entrepreneur in a community and I want to invest in you and you're an early stage company, for example, I don't have a lot of certainty about how I get capital from me to you unless I go through this process. So what you see with new markets is it tends to be a great fit for real estate projects and other types of developments that require much longer lead and that can allow for that type of longer lead. Uh, but it's not as effective at getting capital into local businesses um, for the reasons that I just mentioned. Time is risk, time is money, and it's very hard to have any kind of certainty around raising a fund and deploying it into uh, local operating businesses. And that, maybe more than anything else, was the challenge that Opportunity Zones was intended to overcome, was to get past the scale challenge and get past the intermediary challenge of how do, how do I actually get this capital from point A to point B without sidetracking it uh, to the extent that it no longer becomes useful to the intended recipient. And then the third thing that Opportunity Zones was intended to do um, in terms of design features was provide much greater flexibility for use case. So LIHTC, Low Income Housing Tax Credit, it tells you in the name what it's intended to do. Uh, new Markets Tax Credit, uh, less obvious on the surface, but in practice, much more oriented around uh, certain types of real estate, much less so towards businesses. With Opportunity Zones, the goal was to create a, a mechanism that could fund a really wide array of needs across a wide array of communities. So if you take for granted that the needs of small town Vermont just look fundamentally different than what you might see in the Phoenix metro area, uh, and so on and so on, multiply that across the entire country, now 8,700 opportunity zones, you better have a tool that's uh, malleable enough to meet those local needs and to right size to those local needs, or else you're just creating a very narrow lane that only a couple of places are going to fall into, and everybody else it's not really going to be relevant. So this incentive is designed to sort of reconcile the uh, growth difference between how a business would be faring in an economically successful area versus how it would be growing in an economically distressed area. So how exactly does this incentive do that and, and split the difference? What, what the incentive is really intended to do is to get investors to look at businesses and projects in places that may have plenty of potential, but don't have the attention of the capital markets. And so what what is still true about opportunity zones is the deals themselves, the investments themselves, have to pencil out. They have to be economically viable. So this doesn't turn a failing investment into a magically good investment, and that's really important to underscore. Because if if that were true, what that would be doing is subsidizing um, an investment that cannot live on its own, and therefore will be a perpetual need case for more subsidy and more support. That's not what Congress wanted to do here, and in my view, that's the right approach to these types of policies. But what it is intended to do is get investors to take a look at places at and, and the economic opportunities in those places that currently are underinvested, that don't have the same kind of access to capital that you might take for granted in larger markets or more obvious types of markets. So the benefit that a business gets is, let's say, and this is a common problem, let's say you've, you're a, a, a young company and you're looking to raise equity capital in order to grow, in order to expand. Well, for a lot of young companies, their their options are incredibly limited in terms of where they can get capital. You know, entrepreneurs tend to fall back on home equity, personal savings, lines of credit. When those things aren't as available for, for scale capital, uh, then you look to where are the investors, and they tend to be coastal. And so for a lot of, especially in the venture capital space, VCs want the entrepreneurs to come to them. They want to relocate those companies and pull them out of whatever market they're in into the Bay Area, into Boston, into New York. What this does is kind of invert that dynamic and says to, to those with capital, we actually want to give you an incentive to help those homegrown companies scale in their in their local markets. Uh, and so as those companies look for scale, look for additional rounds of capital, look for that equity, 
this gives them a, a pipeline that they did not otherwise have of very motivated capital. Uh, and with the equity capital also comes a different kind of stakeholdership for the investor. So you're not just giving a loan and guaranteeing yourself a return. Your success as an investor is tied to that that business and that community. So you care a lot about the longer term future. And it, this is really rewarding patient capital as well. So it's not an in and out transaction. The tax benefit to an underlying investor really kicks in after 10 years. So you've got to keep your capital locked up and at risk for a long period of time and be successful in those investments to really see the benefit, which again is different than a tax credit where you're immediately receiving uh, an upfront subsidy. There is no upfront subsidy here with Opportunity Zones. So for the underlying business, that's good because you've got a longer-term engagement from a very motivated capital base that didn't otherwise, in most cases here, uh, types of communities we're talking about, did not otherwise exist. And it creates a different kind of organizing principle for the local um, business sector in these communities. Why is it important to be spreading capital across the country? Why can't we just have big cities winning um and let emerging markets come up as they will? I think that's probably the, t- the toughest question to answer from a public policy standpoint. Uh, because on some level, you could argue, as long as the aggregate jobs numbers are there, as long as, as long as the aggregate growth of the economy is fine, that we shouldn't be too concerned about regionality or you know, th- those questions will sort themselves out. I think it's important for one really simple reason, that if we have a country in which the, the lottery of birth, where, which zip code you're born in, ha- has uh, too much to say about what your life outcomes are going to look like. Uh, I think that is a dangerous thing for people's belief in the fundamental fairness of our economic system. If your access to the American dream is heavily dependent on where you happen to have been born, something you have no choice in, obviously, um, then uh, I think people would be right to question whether this system really has something to offer them and whether there's something fundamentally fair about it. So I think it's really interesting that you're talking about how this tax incentive is going to end up shifting the status quo. So one of the major criticisms of Opportunity Zones is that the people with capital gains, idle capital gains, are wealthy investors. And why are we trying to help them not pay taxes on their capital gains? So is there a certain amount of investor do-goodery that we're counting on? Or are these investors allowed to carry on with maybe the same fully objective business mindset as they approach Opportunity Zone investments? There are some things that just require uh, basic math. Uh, If there's a market demand or a market opportunity, you need somebody who's really good at filling that. And those are things that we take for granted in successful economies. We don't think about every investor's inner motivations when it comes to did they build a store that I really wanted to go to? Did they build a restaurant that I really wanted to, to eat at? Uh, so on some level, not with not in every case, but on some level, if you just got investors to think um, more intentionally about where there are market opportunities outside of the obvious markets, that would be a huge net social positive for communities that need more jobs, need more businesses, need businesses that have better chance to scale, uh, and need Uh, in many cases, um, radical redevelopment of their built environment. So if the net result is nicer places to work and eat and live and send your kids uh, and a more healthy tax base that can provide better resources and better services to the needy in that community, things, again, we take for granted in thriving areas. You're not running out of money for the arts programs in the schools. The firefighters have uniforms that still uh, uh, work and, and, uh, and the ambulances still show up on time when you call them. These are things that a lot of communities can't take for granted, and they fundamentally can't take it for granted because of the erosion of the private sector in their local economies. So 
I, I think what you want to see out of opportunity zones is impact investment, whether or not the investor, the underlying taxpayer, maybe getting the benefit, is fundamentally impacted, mo- motivated or not. You want to get them to act like impact investors, whether or not they actually, you know, define themselves that way. <laughs> and uh, and so again, that's where the true power for this is going to power of this is going to be, if you get a an aggregate change in behavior that's strong enough that it gets a new type of relationship between capital markets and struggling communities. How many investors would you say that you've spoken with since uh, since the 2017 tax overhaul came out and people started catching on to Opportunity Zones? Thousands. Thousands. Mm-hmm. And of all of those investors, what is the most interesting or creative business that someone's pitched to go into an Opportunity Zone? What's the weirdest one? It's <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest one. So I, I've heard of one, uh, the, the, the most intriguing thing I've heard so far is uh, uh, aquaculture, which was something I was not fully familiar with beforehand. Mm-hmm. But apparently in uh, New England, there's a lot of abandoned paper mills that also happen to be really uh, well-suited for indoor salmon farming. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, so s- strip away that kind of novelty of indoor salmon fam- farming and aquaculture. These are communities that were built around a paper mill. And the whole workforce was built around kind of that being the centerpiece. And when those go away, just like you see in so many manufacturing communities, it takes a long time, and it's very painful to, to readjust. And so one great outcome is if you find a emerging industry like salmon farming, which for which there's a huge demand around, around our country and around the world, uh, if you can use Opportunity Zone financing to bring people into that built space, it's already there. It's already hooked up to the water system. It's actually pretty environmentally, environmentally friendly, apparently, to do this. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I think, again, it's that the, the kind of outcome you would not have it, you would not have planned for, you would, at least I would not have talked about on the front end, pass opportunity zones so we can have more aquaculture in, in uh, New England. But that's the kind of thing that it's being uh, put to use for. One of the things that investors are still concerned about and local businesses are still concerned about uh, has to do with the substantial improvement test that uh, is really at the center of, of the law. And all that means in practice is an existing business, if it receives uh, opportunity fund investment, has to be substantially improved in order to qualify. Uh, And the goal here is either to create new businesses or, in the case of existing businesses, for the investment to lead to a catalytic growth of that business. So it's really aimed towards new and growing businesses, not just investing and holding in an existing asset. And so so the concern now is that the way that the rules are written makes that process for existing businesses incredibly cumbersome and complicated to navigate. Uh, and, uh, And there's some relatively easy fixes that get to the same destination point of substantial improvement, but get there much more cleanly and without the same kind of compliance burden that's going to uh, essentially translate into deal risk and compliance burden for the local businesses. And I think exclude, uh, in practice, a lot of otherwise qualifying uh, businesses in the target demographics, uh, which would be a real shame because that's an avoidable problem. And it just takes a little bit more effort, I think, on the part of the IRS to think through how to make sure that we connect those dots. Um, so that's the kind of thing between now and, and the final rulemaking we'd want to see addressed. And we think there's, again, there's, uh, there's a lot of relatively straightforward ways to go about this. But you have to start with the fundamental goal. What is the goal of Opportunity Zones? It's not just to provide an incentive. It's particularly to incentivize the kind of activities in the zone that are going to lead to more jobs, more local wealth, and a more sustainable local economy. There is nothing more important to that than local businesses that grow and that can hire more people and can uh, rejuvenate the tax base. And so this is not an ancillary issue. This is really at the heart of why Opportunity Zones were created, which is why we have to get it right. 
Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Thank you. It's great to be here. And here's this week's top news. Waiting on hold to talk to the IRS? It could soon be a thing of the past. The Internal Revenue Service is testing technology that gives taxpayers the option to have a customer service representative call them back if wait times get too long. Mexico's finance ministry plans to announce the rollout of a tax deal with technology platforms in the coming weeks. The agreement could help boost tax collections in a country where more than half the population works in the informal economy and doesn't pay any income taxes. The Mexican government reached a similar deal with Uber last year, and the ride-hailing service agreed to withhold taxes from its drivers. Here in the U.S., Opportunity Zone investors now have their very own trade association. A former staffer to South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, one of the creators of the tax incentive, co-founded the lobbying group. The 2017 tax law included the Opportunity Zone credit to drive investment in low-income areas. New York state lawmakers are advancing a bill that could force the release of President Donald Trump's tax returns to Congress. The state Senate bill would allow New York to release tax returns to congressional committees if requested. Releasing Trump's state returns would also effectively release portions of his federal returns. The Trump administration has refused to comply with a congressional subpoena to turn over the president's tax records. For more on these stories, visit news.bloombergtax.com. That's it for this week's edition of Talking Tax. Signing off from Washington, I'm Amanda Icone. And I'm Suri Belusu. Thanks for listening. You probably have a lot of questions about the environment. Well, so do we. Are we talking like radioactive chemicals? Is this becoming sort of irrelevant if the U.S. doesn't participate in this? What's going on here? How far did the Trump administration go? And is mining really better down where it's wetter? Climate change, chemicals, water pollution, you name it. If it's in the environment, we're talking about it. Listen to Bloomberg Environment's official podcast, Parts Per Billion, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, get up-to-the-minute reporting at our website, news.bloombergenvironment.com.